Welcome again, everybody, to Marin Covenant Church. We're glad you're here. Um, I have, uh, I've been born and raised and lived in uh, the Bay Area for almost my entire life. And as someone who's been in, uh, part of the Bay Area for my entire life, I love the Giants. Now, there's some people who are part of the Bay Area, like, like Art and Jeff and Matt, who like love the A's, but I'm sorry, you should love the Giants. The Giants are the true team of the Bay Area. They're for sure the true team of anyone who lives in a 415 area code. And uh, even my poor wife, who's a Dodgers fan, after World Series, after World Series, after World Series, has finally turned the corner and is even willing to wear Giants gear here and there. And uh, this last uh, World Series was the best, right? We're even years. We now have a rhythm. It's our thing. And uh, this moment was like seared in our mind, right? So if you are even a nominal baseball fan like myself, right, you know the Giants are awesome, and you're a Giants fan, and you wear your, your shirt here and there to let everyone know that you're a Giants fan. Well, I don't get out of the Bay Area very much, and so I assume everyone's a Giants fan. And how can you not be a Giants fan after this, uh, after this run that we've been on? Well, this last fall in November, I went and spoke to a couple of churches from Kansas, and uh, it was like seeing a unicorn. I saw a Kansas Royals fan. And uh, I didn't even know the Kansas City had a team still. I mean, I'm not a true baseball fan. I'm kind of a fair-weather baseball fan. And... Um, but I forgot the Royals were even a Major League Baseball team still until the end of the playoffs. And sure enough, I'm at this retreat and I'm wearing my Giants jersey, having a great time, totally offending this kid who's a diehard baseball fan, wearing his Royals hat that's all sweat-stained. And, and, uh, and so, we had, so we had this meal, we're talking about baseball, and he's like, man, this was the most incredible year, it was a dream year, it was, it was so great. And I'm like, listen, man, we're a dynasty. You, you're a fluke. And like, we had this whole conversation, we're going back and forth. And, uh, and finally, I'm like, he's like, no, no, next year you're going to see. I'm like, okay, let's do this thing. 50 bucks. This poor college kid, I don't care. I'm teaching him a lesson, you know? So I put in my phone, 50 bucks. So next, Octo coming up this October, we're going to meet. And I saw him at Chick this summer. I'm like, we're still on, right? He's like, yeah, but I think you're right. I'm like, I know. But you made a bet. You're a godly man. You got to be a man of your word. So, but what's interesting, I don't think so. The Royals are not going to the World Series. 50 bucks. 50 bucks. Another double or nothing. 50 bucks. Come on, baby. I got a raise. Let's do this thing. Okay. So here's the deal, though. What's interesting, though, for me, it's this moment. And this picture is a moment in time. It's a history moment. And everyone's talking about, you know, the Giants, every, the even years. It's our years. And, and there's starting to be this, this history about it. But it's our history because we live in the Bay Area and they're our team. And the Royals have a whole different way they saw the, the, the postseason play out for them, you know? And, uh, and everyone kind of has these different perspectives of how this historical moment happened. And what will happen is in a few more years, if the Giants keep winning, right, the, the story will grow and expand. If the Giants all of a sudden stop, winning, that would be the end of the story. And uh, in five years from now, uh, ESPN will do a 30 for 30 on the, on, on the Giants, and we'll all go, oh, remember back when, and it was great. And uh, what's interesting, is, and all of us who watch uh, ESPN, sorry for the sports analogy, um, everybody, but if you watch ESPN, they're the authority on sports. They're the authority in baseball, and when they do a 30 for 30, when they interview the people, everyone goes, yeah, that makes sense. That's the story. That's how it's shaped. We're all good to go with it. And it gets closed up into the archives forever and all time. And the reason why I tell you that is because we are um, in the middle of the summer of the scriptures. We're spending all summer reading through different chunks of the scriptures all the way through. And uh, we just finished the Old Testament last week, and now we're starting the chunk in the New Testament called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And so if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it. Take the one right in front of you. Take it out from your phone. Um, it's in the New Testament. Can't miss it. Right in the very beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are historical narratives. They are 
the Gospels. And they're the story of Jesus Christ told by four different people from four different perspectives. Um, but from the ESPNs of their time. They were the um, people closest to the scene, and, uh, and they have a story to tell us. Now, what's interesting is, um, for almost all of the church history, um, been, these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have become kind of the settled picture of who Jesus is. They, uh, they were the people closest to the scene. They were the documents that kind of were shared, and, and all the people who like, read them were like, yep, that's true, that's right. And they kind of got, got shared and passed on from generation to generation to generation. And the church kind of said, yep, um, all these Christians before us, through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, said these are the um, authoritative versions of the story of Jesus Christ. And then about 100 years ago, there was this thing called textual criticism and historical criticism and every sort of criticism. And they started saying, well, I don't know how much you can trust the people back then because they, they did history differently. And, and there were some good questions, some really hard questions. And especially way back when Art was in seminary, they were really getting after this stuff. And uh, they were just beating the heck out of these Gospels and trying to go, and there's this Q guy and there's all these different things going on. How in the world were the Gospels put together? And it was just being deconstructed after deconstructed after deconstructed after deconstructed. And... Uh, and if you're a Christian and you believe in the authority of Scripture, you are like, what in the world do I do with the Gospels? Because you can't trust anything anymore, apparently. Um, but it's, at some point, what's interesting is all that criticism kind of jumped the shark because as, you can only deconstruct for so long. And they deconstructed and deconstructed to basically there's like nothing left. Well, if there's nothing left, well, then what do you do? Well, if there's nothing left, then let's go back and look at the giant middle of the bell curve of the church history and tradition that says, hey, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John— are the story of Jesus Christ that the church has trusted for over 2,000 years. And if the church and the Christians have trusted this story to tell us about who Jesus is, and it's proven itself in the community of God for all this time, then maybe we as a church can have a little humility and go, well, what could that possibly say for us? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you have your Bible, let's start right here with Matthew. And so Matthew is the first book um, of the Gospels. And what's interesting is, it wasn't the first book that was written. Mark, most uh, um, scholars think Mark was written first, but we get Matthew first. And Matthew, um, if you see on the map, um, Matthew was written in Antioch. Um, so right here, this green star, it was uh, in northern Palestine, and he was writing, written to a, writing to a Jewish audience. Okay? So the Jewish people, they love, uh, they love God, they love Yahweh, they love the Torah. And Matthew um, has this heart. His perspective, he's Levi. Right? He was the tax collector. And in uh, his perspective, in his heart, was to help the people of God, the Israel, Israelite people of God, to see that Jesus was the, was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. The people of, of Israel were waiting for a king who was going to come, who was going to make all things right, who was going to establish this new kingdom on earth forever and ever. And Matthew said that kingdom, that Messiah, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And what's interesting is some scholars have said the way that Matthew's put together is actually can be divided into these five chunks that kind of mimic the Torah. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of Matthew's like most famous writings. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically going through the Ten Commandments and the laws of the, of the Torah and saying, you've heard it say this. But Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills the law. He gives the deeper interpretation of the law. And, um, and, it, and it goes on, and then so that, sorry, that Jesus, the Messiah, comes formally introduced to the people of God, to Israel. But then Israel rejects him. And then uh, Matthew says, sets it up for Jesus to go out into the whole world. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with this, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, 
So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the, 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 the perspective that Matthew has is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the long-awaited Messiah, who's coming first to Israel and then to all the nations of the world. So that's Matthew. And if you turn over a few pages, you get to Mark. And Mark um, is the shortest gospel. So if you're like, I want to read a gospel and you don't like reading that much, Mark is perfect. It's quick and uh, there's a lot of action, a lot of things going on. And uh, Mark, uh, most scholars think that Mark was the, um, the companion uh, known as John Mark. And he traveled sometime with Paul and sometime with Peter. Um, but the later of his life, he was a companion to Peter in Rome. And so, so Mark was written also in Rome. So if you have a map and you don't know where Rome is, Rome is the blue, the blue uh, square. No, that's the star. All right? So John Mark was in Rome with Peter, and that's where uh, they wrote this gospel. And what's interesting about the gospel of Mark is, um, is it has a really unique perspective in that you get this very clear picture that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus has all this power and authority. He's doing miracles all the time. Every time he has a chance, he's healing people. He has authority, and he's, he's going in combat with the, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? The, there's all this great stuff that's going on, but he is the Son of God. But the Son of God, who has all power and authority, has given up all of his power and authority. He's unlike the other Son of God, because if you were a Roman citizen in Rome, the Caesars, right, they referred themselves as the Son of God. And those sons of God used all their power and all their authority to crush other people, but Mark is saying, no, our Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, has given up all of his power and all of his authority for the sake of others, to serve others. And uh, what's interesting is also in the book of Matthew, uh, you get this picture that he went to Israel and they rejected him. And in the later part of, of the Gospel of Mark, you see that he went to the Romans, to the Syrians, and to the Gentiles. And the end of Mark is wrapped up this way in verse um, 15. It says this, um, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. So here we have another very Jewish-minded um, author writing to Jewish people, but yet making it clear that Jesus came first to Israel, but the gospel is actually for the whole world and for all of creation. All right, so now if we keep thumbing our, our fingers over, we're going to get all the way to Luke. And Luke is the third gospel of the synoptic gospels. And people call them the Synoptic Gospels because they say that it's the, um, they have like the same lens. It's like the same lens in which they're viewing the story of God. Um, many um, scholars think that they all use the similar um, documents and resources to kind of come up with their story. And, uh, they, and all of them um, are, have a similar rhythm that way. So Luke is the last one. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially if you read the, through the Bible and you're like, I'm going to read through all the Gospels. By the time you get to Luke, you're like, man, haven't I read this already? Haven't I read this already? Because they're the synoptic Gospels. Boom, boom, boom. So Luke is the last one. And uh, what I love about Luke is Luke is like the History Channel. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've ever watched the History Channel, it's like always something about World War II, right? It's always World War II on the History Channel. And, um, and they're, they're these historical um, authors and scholars who are trying to paint this story. And Luke was a doctor. He was a companion of Paul. And, uh, and, what, and what he did was, is he, um, he said, I want to understand, I want to tell the story, the accurate story of who Jesus is. So Mar Matthew, right, he wanted to say, hey, here's the story of Jesus, but through the lens of this coming Messiah. And Mark wanted to tell the story through the lens that Jesus is the Son of God. But Luke told the story. He said, listen, I want to give you the historical account. You've heard all these things about who Jesus is. You've heard all this stuff about 
um, who he is and what's going on. Um, but I want to just give you the historical backdrop. I want to give you the historical narrative so that you can be sure that this person we're talking about was a real-life person. And there's all these incredible details all throughout Luke. And Luke also was written um, in Rome um, because Luke was a companion of Paul at the end of Paul's life. Um, he was in Rome as well. So you have and where the blue star is. And so you have this incredible um, passage in, uh, in Luke. And what's interesting about Luke is by the end of it, there's kind of this like waiting. It's, like, it's not like a true ending. Jesus goes into heaven, but it's like, but then wait, there's more. And it's like uh, when you watch the Twilight movies, you know, the last one, they try to stretch it into two movies. You're like, just do one movie. But they did two movies. No Twilight fans? Was that too long ago? Harry Potter? Whatever. Same thing, right? So they do... Um, but that was it. You have the Gospel of Luke, and that was just part one, and it goes into Acts. And next week, Jeff's going to preach a great sermon on Acts and kind of give the second part of Luke's story. But even at the end of Luke, if you see Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 46 and 47, it says, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And here, another very Jewish-centric version of the gospel of Jesus is making it clear Jesus came, but it's ultimately for all of humanity. All right, now we're making our way all the way to John to the last gospel. And John is totally different than the other three. You have the synoptic gospels, and then you have the gospel of John. And John was written um, in Ephesus. And so if you see the map, um, Ephesus is right in the middle of the Greek empire. Um, of, and uh, it's where uh, Paul wrote, I think, one of the best letters in all the Bible, the book to Ephesians. And just the way in which people understood the world was vastly di different than the way that Jewish people understood the world. And what's interesting, when you read the Synoptic Gospels, the, the basic um, framework is this, repent and believe. And if you're a religious person, you get what that means. A religious person, no matter what religion they are, they know that there's a religious way in which you live. You're not living that way, so you need to turn away from all this dumb stuff you're doing and move back to this religious way that you were living. And so for a Jewish here, they would go, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent and turn to Jesus. Repent and follow me. They would go, oh, this makes sense. But for the Greeks, for people who didn't have this religiosity, they didn't, like, repenting from what didn't really make as much sense to them. But for their worldview, um, they had this idea that to believe, and John's whole message was believe. Believe in the one that Jesus says. And uh, John 20 says, This was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. And what's interesting is when you read Paul's letters, and you read Paul's letters to the Ephesians, uh, right in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it says that if you're to take off your old self, take off the corrupted version, the way that you used to think, and by renewing your mind, by transforming your mind and believing, then you put on this right way of thinking and this right way of believing. And, um, and the whole picture of Ephesians is that, that you understand who God is by you put your faith in Christ, you become adopted into his kingdom, and then by believing these things, you then go on to live a certain way. And so the whole gospel of John is trying to compel people to understand who Jesus is so that they would believe in him. And what's interesting is right in the beginning, um, and the, the, uh, the Greeks were really smart people, right? They, they, at least they thought they were really smart, and we thought they were smart. And uh, so logic and reason and wisdom was so important to them. And, uh, and I love how John begins the beginning of, of his gospel. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And if you were a Greek and you were into wisdom and knowledge, you're like, yes, the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And I love this picture that we have in John because, again, in, even in a totally Greek setting, this idea that Jesus was the true light, Jesus came into the world, the world rejected him. They did not want anything to do with him. But to those who did receive him, they gave the right to become children of God. And so that's just a real brief summary. Those are, I mean, you, those are the four Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's why there's four. That's why there are four different ones. But I think there's some, real, some really interesting things. There's some, um, some common themes I think are really important for us. And here's the first one, is that the Gospel was actually, is actually for all people for all time. That the good news of Jesus Christ was not just for one culture, for one type of people, for one type of background, but the Gospel and the Gospel's account prove that God's heart is for all people. If it was only for one type of person for one time, there would just be one gospel, the gospel according to Matthew. Great. The Jewish people, are, they're set. They're golden. But instead we have Matthew and we have Mark and we have Luke. We have people who want to know historical accuracy. Man, you got Luke. You have uh, John who's in a totally different context and culture and communicates the gospel in a very unique way for those people. Um, the apostle Paul did the same sort of thing, right? Paul didn't just show up and, and say the gospel the exact same way to every group of people. Right? The, the gospel always centered on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But when he'd go to a synagogue, he'd start with a synagogue and say, hey, you remember Moses and David and the prophets? He would talk about all this Jewish history that, that made sense to them. And then he would say, well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And then when you go to Ephesus, I mean, he'd go to Athens and uh, they had no Jewish background. He didn't start with Moses there, right? He started with their common culture and used their common culture about the, uh, you know, the, the idol that has the unknown idol. And so Jesus was then the fulfillment of that. Right? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. And it's so helpful because our grandparents understood the gospel in a certain way. We're understanding the gospel in a different and unique way. Our kids are going to understand the gospel in even a different way. But the reality is, is that the gospel is centered on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He is good news. And now it is up for us to proclaim the gospel according to Ben, right? The gospel according to Amanda, the gospel right, according to all of us. We are the now the new people to proclaim the gospel to our people in our unique context and all of us give testimony to the unique way in which Jesus has molded us and shaped us and changed us. So that's one is the gospel is for all people. The second is that the gospel is good news, but it's not just an idea. Um, it's not just a belief and it's not just a group of behaviors. That the gospel is actually, and the good news is a person, Right? When you think of philosophies like Buddhism or Hinduism, it's like, hey, live this certain way. There's certain things that you want to live like, and it's this philosophy, a way to live. But the good news is not a philosophy. Or there's other religions like Islam or even how people understand Judaism as this list of rules. Behave this way, and you're going to be a good person. You're going to make it. But the good news of Jesus is not a philosophy. It's not rules. There's some really great philosophical things. There's some really great rules. But what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ such good news is that it is about a person. It is about the living Christ who is alive and who is active. John says that I'm the, good, I'm the vine and that you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. The way that transformation happens, the way that healing happens, does, isn't by thinking good thoughts, isn't by disciplining your life and doing good things. The way that transformation happens is by being connected to the living Christ. So the gospel is not just an idea of rules, but is also a person. And that the gospel and that Jesus has real power and real authority. All of us are trying to have authority and power in our real lives. We're kind of angling, trying to make ourselves and our name great. We're trying to become important. And there are those people in our world. 
But what happens is once they start, once they lose their job, once they lose their money, once they lose their office, once certain things happen to them, they no longer have that same power and authority. But Jesus always has power and authority. His very nature is one of power and authority. And the Gospels, in every single account, Jesus proves that he has all authority and all power. And yet he uses all this power and authority to leverage for the sake of others. He's become the servant of all. And the last thing is this, that the gospel came to Israel first, but they rejected it, and then it's for the whole world. And I think that's important. A lot of times we forget um, in our version of Christianity that Jesus came to the people of Israel, to a historical people who rejected him, and then from there the gospel went out. And, and we need to understand that because every gospel talks about that. Um, Romans talks about that. Galatians talk about that. When you read through the scripture, there's always this hearkening back to Jesus came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And that's important because I think for those of us who've been around the church for a long time, we fall into the same trap that the Jewish people fell into, that we think the gospel's for me. It's good news for me, and I'm set, and I'm golden, and I got mine, so that's it. But over and over again, we get the picture that God is interested in everybody. He's interested in the farthest reaches of people, not just in you and not just in me, but in everybody. And I just want to end our time with one quick passage of Scripture, which I think is a beautiful story that sums all this up. So in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells one of his parables. He says this, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he set his servants to tell those who had been invited to come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it, so please excuse me. The other said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, so please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Well, sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Well, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get to taste my banquet. And I love this picture of God, this picture of this banquet table. For God's heart is to throw this amazing and massive party. That is God's heart, to be the dad where all of his kids come and gather around, where he gets to sit and watch football, and all of his kids get to just have the, the run of the yard and the, and the grandkids swim in the pool. I think that is just the heart of God, to have this banquet that all people are invited. And what's interesting is that so many of us who've been around the church a long time we start taking for granted God's love and God's grace. The people of Israel for sure took for granted God's love and God's grace as this unique people of God. And so by the time it came to say, hey, there's this party coming, come and be with me. They're like, nah, I'm too busy. I got other stuff to do. And even now, I mean, I know and love God so much. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. This is my job. And I still go, no, oh, I got other things to do. I feel like God's saying, oh, you should do this. Think about this. No, I'll get to that. And this is my job. We get so inoculated sometimes to the love and grace of God that we just get distracted. And this word that we have from God, I think, is a good reminder of God's heart for his people, that he loves us, that he is throwing this enormous wedding banquet for us. And I don't know about you, but there's kind of two different peoples in the world. There's the people who love throwing parties, and then there's people who just love going to parties. Now, please, I love going to parties. Don't get me wrong. It is incredible. I, uh, you invite me, I am there. I love the food, the atmosphere, the wine. I love it all. My wife, she loves throwing parties. She loves hosting parties. 
And uh, the first part of our marriage, I would always, it would drive me crazy that she would love to host parties because I'm like, listen, we're young. We don't have a lot of money. Why are you inviting people to our house all the time? Why do you want to throw these parties? Because that means we have to do yard work for two days ahead of time. It means we're doing a Costco run on Saturday with the whole gigantic world, right? We're, we have to buy all this food, prepare all this stuff. Then everyone just comes in and wreck shop at our house. They all leave. And then we have to like clean up afterwards. And you know, it's, it is a costly thing to throw a party. And most of us, are in the process of, and in the habit of going to parties and just being takers. Maybe we'll bring like a, the hostess gift. Hey, here's some flowers. Thanks for spending thousand dollars on your party. Here's some flowers I got at Trader Joe's, right? That's kind of what we do. And, but the hosts love it. But we need to understand that the host who throws this huge party, it is a gigantic cost, right? When we think of God's love and God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's blessings. Those aren't just things that show up. Like those cost something. There is a cost to God's love, to God's grace, to God's blessing. It cost him something. And Jesus wants everyone to come to this gigantic party. And if you think the bigger the party, the more expensive the cost. And if God's going to say, listen, I want the whole world to come to this party, then the cost is going to be great. And the cost to get as many people to the party as possible was for God himself in, the, in his son, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven, to leave the throne room of heaven, to leave being worshipped by all eternity for all angels and become a human to have to become a teenager, to have to be homeless and live a life and teach and preach and tell people about how incredible your dad is only to be rejected all the time. I'm like, Jesus was like the tr first true youth worker. I mean, as a youth pastor, all we do is like, we play these incredible events, incredible events, incredible events, and kids are like, nah, I'm gonna stay at home and watch my, watch my phone. You're like, oh, I just planned this incredible event. We're gonna do this great thing. Now nah, I'm gonna stay at home and watch my phone. I'm like, it is brutal. And that's just my dumb little thing I planned. I couldn't even imagine the amount of rejection Jesus must have felt to say, listen, I came here so you would come and be a part of my father's party. And he was rejected and he was rejected. And he continued to find ways to invite people. And ultimately, Jesus died and his death on the cross was to pay the price, to pay the penalty, to pay all the things that have separated us from us and God, to do away with that forever. So we can now come fully into the party. We don't just get to come and hang on the periphery, but because of what Jesus has done, because of the gigantic price that Jesus has done, we get to enter in to the party. God's heart is for the whole world. And a lot of us, we think, thanks God, I got in. We have our one kind of nice friend who's not quite a Christian yet, but we hang out with them. We're like, okay, well, maybe for them, and I'll keep praying for them, and maybe for them. But I think if we only are satisfied with us knowing God and being invited to the party and us being satisfied with inviting our one friend to the party, then I think we're going to miss the incredible heart that God has for all people in all time to come to the giant banquet house of God and celebrate the party with him. So uh, we're going to do communion in a second. And what's interesting is on the Passover meals, the or we call it the Lord's Supper, but it was a Passover meal, and it was a family meal that Jesus celebrated, that all Jewish people celebrated. Even my dad, who's like barely Jewish, we still have the Passover meal. It's a time for your family to come together and gather. In fact, if you were an awesome, good Jewish person, you would even invite strangers and foreigners and, and guests. You would invite them to your house, and you'd have this incredible meal, and you would tell them about the story of God. The story when God rescued his people who were dying in slavery. And yet through a miraculous intervention, God rescued them from slavery, from Pharaoh, through the Red Sea and into the promised land. And Jesus said, you know what? That story is being fulfilled in me today. 
And so when they would take the Passover meal and they would take the bread, he then, Jesus, took the bread and gave new meaning to it. He said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread, take it, and you do so in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the wine, and he poured out the wine. He said, this wine is actually my blood shed for you, a seal of the brand new covenant. It is the incredible and high cost that Jesus paid to give all of us access to the banquet of God and to the household of God. And Jesus says at the banquet table, which is just a picture of the ultimate banquet table in our time in heaven, he says, this is, um, sorry, I got all jumbled up. But he says, whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you celebrate the Lord's life and his death and his resurrection. And we anxiously wait for him to come again. Now, before we celebrate communion, um, I have an invitation for you. And we're going to go old school campy, so just be ready for this, okay? Many of you know and love Jesus, and praise God for that. This is your church. These are your people. God found you in some moment. Some friend invited you to the banquet table, and you experienced the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Your life is being and has been transformed by Jesus. And for that, praise God. But God's call on his people is to not just continue to sit around the banquet table and to laugh and to keep drinking and have so much fun but God longs for his people who've experienced the love and grace of Jesus to actually to go out, to not just go to our one friend who's kind of like us and we would love for them to know and love Jesus, but to the highways and the byways, to the second and third and fourth tier people, people we haven't even looked at in so long we don't even know. But there are people in all of our worlds and all of our lives who desperately need to know the love and grace of Jesus, who desperately need to know and love the grace of our church and have real people see them and care for them. And so I'm going to ask you to do something kind of campy, but I'm, if there's somebody in your world, there's somebody in your world that desperately needs to know the love and grace of Jesus, whether they're your first tier, second tier, third tier, but they are in your world, and this morning you're willing to stand up and commit and say, I'm going to pray for them. They're no longer going to be on the third tier, but I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to ask whatever God might have for me to be involved in them that God would use you to share with them the love and grace of Jesus. So if you have someone that God's put on your heart, I'm going to ask that you would just stand up and stand up for them so that they may someday come to know and love Jesus and be invited to his banquet table. And every one of you standing up means that there's that person somewhere out there who desperately needs to know and love Jesus. And there might be some of you in this room who have been a guest from our church a long time, maybe a guest brand new today. And maybe this morning you've been tired of looking, being on the outside looking in, but maybe this is the morning where God has for you to take advantage of the incredible price that Jesus paid. To say yes to Jesus, to put your faith in him, to believe in him so that you would have the right to become children of God. And if you're that person who maybe this is the day that you want to stand up and say, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus, I would invite you to stand up as well and join your friends.
Now, before we celebrate communion, I just invite the rest of us, if everyone would just stand and join us before we do communion and do worship. Let me pray for us, and then we'll wrap up our service. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, we thank you that you see us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be seen and known. For you've invited not just us, but you invited the entire world to come to your banquet table to enjoy your generosity, your blessing, your healing, your saving, and your transforming. God, for the people who said yes to you today, God, I pray that they would fully get the depth and breadth of your love. They would fully understand the mantle of what it means to be a child of God. And for those of us who have stood up and said, God, there are these people in my life who desperately need to know your love and grace. God, may we have your heart. May we proclaim our gospel. The gospel of Bruce, the gospel of Anka, the gospel of David. That we would tell them the ways that you have changed us and molded and shaped us so that others may come to know you. And it'd be for your glory. Amen and amen.